Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, an early October survey showed that while 60% of those polled knew that the Build Back Better legislative package was $3.5 trillion, only 10% had any sense of what was in it. That is many things, but preeminently a failure of news media. The demonstrably harmful effect of months of reporting that never failed to note the presumed costs of a plan to address devastating national crises of health care, climate, and infrastructure, but that only rarely troubled itself to explain in any detail what those plans would mean. Despite that, polls still show majorities of Americans supporting the legislative package. We'll talk about seeing and pushing through anti-democratic disinformation with Karen Dolan, director of the Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Also on the show, a New York Times column by an editorial board member begins, quote, Facebook has endured one of the most punishing stretches of corporate coverage in recent memory, exposing its immense power and blithe disregard for its deleterious impacts. But none of it really matters. Close quote. Headlined, Face It, Facebook Won't Change Unless Advertisers Demand It, the piece is ostensibly meant as a sober assessment of the difficulty of exacting change from a company while it's making money. But given the role of journalism in telling folks what is possible, the Times espousing the notion that Congress, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, and the press are all, quote, but bumps in the road, close quote, reads less as a dry-eyed evaluation than as a call to throw up our hands in the face of an unwinnable contest. Our guest understands media structure, yet still advocates for policy change. We'll hear from Tim Carr, Senior Director of Strategy and Communications at the group Free Press. That's coming up. We'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Things are up in the air as we record on October 28th, but it seems that paid family and medical leave, among other things, has been cut from the Build Back Better legislative package, which today's New York Times describes as considerably more modest than initially envisioned. A recent Washington Post editorial, Build Back Better is Getting Worse and Worse, said that Democrats are, quote, at risk of producing legislation that is so compromised and slapdash that it would amount to a tragic missed opportunity, close quote. Poignant words that would land differently had not the Post and the rest of the elite press corps delivered months of coverage on the safety net, climate, and infrastructure package that so overwhelmingly focused on its costs over its contents that proponents, including Senator Bernie Sanders, were driven to produce a webinar called What's in the Damn Bill? Joining us now to talk about Build Back Better and the struggles around it is Karen Dolan. She's a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where she directs the Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Karen Dolan. Thank you, Janine. Wonderful to be here. 
Well, I admit my heart sank to see the Times this morning. Biden announces $1.85 trillion framework for climate and safety net plan, both because it represents such a material reduction in what was looking like a plan to begin to confront this country's climate and human health crises, not to mention to respond to the public will to do that, but then also because it seems like media are going to continue to reduce this plan about people to a price tag. What are your broad thoughts today about how the White House and lawmakers have so far handled what is, once folks know about it, a very popular plan. I agree with you, Janine, that the media has not done its job and by not doing its job has done a great disservice to the American people. So you look at the latest polls where about 35 percent of people feel that there's anything in the bill that will help them when in reality, even this pared down bill will help nearly everyone who isn't a millionaire and billionaire. And millionaires and billionaires aren't going to be hurt very much. Additionally, the investments in this bill are more than paid for. In fact, they go to pay down the deficit because two senators have pared down the ways in which the dollars could be spent to help the rest of us. So there's actually still an awful lot of good in this package, Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't know it from headlines like you announced today from the New York Times or the Washington Post, or as you rightly said, over the summer. I think that the Progressive Caucus, Bernie Sanders, some of the lawmakers, even Joe Biden have tried to make clear the ways in which the proposals in the bill will help most of us, and especially poor and low-income children and people of color who were most adversely affected by the pandemic. But as you say, the concentration has been on the price tag, when in reality, the price tag is zero. Well, I know you've been particularly interested in the fate of the child tax credit. And that Washington Post editorial lamented that Democrats might expand the child tax credit for perhaps only a single year. But in doing that, they said, quote, a long-term expansion should take precedence over a federal pre-kindergarten program or expanded housing aid, close quote. We all know that choices have to be made, but I find that media sometimes just throw around this tough talk about what we have to jettison and what's in competition with what. And you're just indicating it in terms of cost, particularly when we're talking about family supporting measures, that invidiousness is just off base. Yes, I think it is. I think it's very harmful. I think also the reality around the child tax credit, that is indeed a tax cut for middle class families, but it also reaches 27 million children who were not receiving any of the tax credit or just partial tax credit. And that is what we call full refundability. And that has been made permanent. So that is a permanent benefit for the very poorest and low income children among us. And that's huge. That will have lifelong effects for them. And because of Joe Manchin, the extensions were only able to go for a year without work requirements or means testing in a way that would have been extremely harmful. So what we've got is one year of an extension of the expansion of the child tax credit for everyone up through $150,000. 
the household. But we've got the full refundability is permanent. So those are really very important. And this bill is not what we had hoped. I think progressive movements would say we needed more like $10 trillion, which we could have paid for. Because remember, the revenue raisers are permanent. And we easily could have paid for the $3.5 trillion, And we more than pay for this pared down one75 or $1.95 we have to look at it as a foot in the door, as, an, as a down payment, but one that is critical, one that will improve the lives, especially of poor and low-income children, and that can't be ignored. Well, let's take a brief detour because Joe Manchin did bring up this idea of work requirements, and I just wonder if we're ever going to retire that narrative. Can you speak briefly to that whole storyline? Yes. Well, I think that this agreement, even as pared down as it is, has retired that temporarily. Good. Mm -hmm. So we live to fight another day. And that's why we only have one year of the extension of the full child tax credit expansion that we had under the American Rescue Plan. So that is without work requirements. It's completely baseless. There is no evidence and never has been that imposing a work requirement on receiving these benefits for the poorest children make any difference in terms of workforce participation. So that is many of the arguments that have been raised by If not all, I would submit all of the arguments that have been posed by Manchin, obstructionist arguments, have no basis in reality. And he cannot produce credible research that points that he's correct, whereas there's much evidence that he's incorrect. So that's really, I think, where if the media insists on focusing on infighting among the Democratic Party, which I also don't think is helpful nor truthful, it's really all of the Democrats against Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Also, not one Republican is for helping the American people. That's also a message that gets lost. So talking about moderates versus progressives is not only unhelpful, it's untrue. And there's nothing moderate about Joe Manchin's position nor Kirsten Sinema's position. They're both extreme outliers. When you look at the popularity of the proposals from the billionaire's tax to paid family leave, you know, you have upwards of 75, 80 percent in some cases popularity among the voting public for these things. And some of them are bipartisan. So there's nothing moderate about the opposition. It's extreme, it's fringe, and it's two people. And the entire Republican Party, which also is never mentioned. Exactly. Well, extending that kind of distortion is when we hear media describe progressives who are holding the line and continuing to fight for measures that the public overwhelmingly supports, those people being described as holding the bill hostage. Well, that's right. And they are not the people who are obstructing it. And keep in mind, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is about half of the Democratic Caucus. So about 100 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And they're simply holding a, a principled position. There was a tacit agreement that both the physical infrastructure bill, the roads and bridges, and the so-called human infrastructure bill, the child care, the, the safety net, the, the hearing the, for our seniors, the home care for our seniors and disabled people, that these would all advance together. And they're simply trying to make sure that there is the best deal possible for the American people. Well, finally, the process 
unfolding before our eyes might seem to some to reflect a kind of brokenness of the connection promised by a democratic society that the will of the people would be reflected in public policy. Here we see elective representatives cutting away at this for what are being described as political reasons, and it makes it seem like a kind of funhouse mirror idea of how democracy should work. And I I know that you think about the relationship of policymaking to social movements. It just seems critical to hold in mind right now that as important as electoral politics are and how we cannot see the ground, they're not the only arena for action. We don't want people to say, oh, look how they're not doing what we elected them to do. Therefore, I step out of the whole process. We have to see that La lucha continua, you know, whatever happens this week. Yes, I think that's right. And I think it's also when people really look at the bill and see how the Congressional Progressive Caucus isn't holding the line or the entire Democratic caucus, except for two members, isn't holding the line simply for political reasons and their own political ambitions. These numbers, these programs, these policies, as far as we've gotten, all come from social movements. It's from decades of social movements. We're not getting everything that we've fought for, but we're getting more than we've gotten in decades. And things like, although the reports are paid leave has been stripped out of the bill, the the legislation hasn't been written. Mm -hmm. We still have power. People can still call their members of Congress. They can still tell their stories online. They can still do social media. It is we who push our elected representatives. It is social movements. It is getting out on the street. It is picking up the phone. That's why we've gotten where we've gotten. And what is in this bill is the result of social movements. And it's terrific. It is not everything it could have been or should have been. And we must build on it. But we can't walk away from what we have just spent decades of blood, sweat and tears to get to this point. We've been speaking with Karen Dolan, director of the Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Thank you so much, Karen Dolan, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. It's been my pleasure. Gizmodo reports leaked documents from Facebook showing that the company's internal research found that people don't trust it, are confused by its rules on content moderation, and that, as the reporter puts it, nobody believed Facebook was motivated by anything but fat stacks of cash. This comports with revelations from whistleblower Francis Haugen, and even before that, that point to a company that worse than failed to stop the spread of disinformation, including around COVID-19 and the Stop the Steal movement behind the January 6th insurrection, that has a troubling record of targeted content removal abroad, including against Palestinians, we're learning, that enables products and features it knows are harmful to millions of young users, and for whom all of this crucially seems to be not a bug but a feature. The company's reported entertainment of a name change is unlikely to deflect the public legislative and regulatory scrutiny it now faces. But what that scrutiny will amount to concretely is still to be determined. Here to catch us up is Tim Carr. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Communications at Free Press. He joins us now by phone from New Jersey. Welcome back to Counterspin, Tim Carr. Always great to be with you. 
Well, before we talk about what we're learning and around, you know, what we're learning, I I wonder if you would talk to us a bit about how we are coming to learn this stuff. Folks may have seen the Wall Street Journal publishing the Facebook files, but a number of people have been working on these whistleblower documents and on other materials. What do you think is meaningful about what's going on maybe behind the scenes here? Well, this is a really remarkable series of events. And you mentioned uh, we first started learning about the what are called Facebook papers and when the Wall Street Journal did a fairly extensive expose, a number of stories a couple of weeks ago. We also learned that there was a whistleblower involved who had also provided documents to Congress and to the SEC. We came to know that whistleblower when 60 Minutes did an expose and interviewed Frances Haugen. Congress then called her to testify, and there was a lot of news around that. And then there was a sort of second wave where a number of news outlets, including some pretty major names like the New York Times, Associated Press, CNN, started reporting stories. And it was really this, this sort of avalanche of stories that happened earlier this week and continues to this day. And what's happening here is that Frances Hogan has a pretty sophisticated PR operation. When she decided to come forward as a whistleblower, she received some support from Whistleblower Aid, which is a group that provides legal protection to whistleblowers, and also from PR agency. And the PR agency decided that not only Are we going to provide these thousands of pages of documents to the Wall Street Journal? We want to make sure that the story remains in the headlines for weeks. So what they did was work with a consortium, 17 news outlets, and said, we're going to give you bits and pieces. And uh, every day you're going to get a new bunch of documents, and then you can report on them. And they've created this structure by which they're slowly doling out chunks of these documents to this consortium with the plan that this this will last for six weeks. So Mm -hmm. through the end of November, we will be seeing new daily news items provided through this structure that was created. Trying to keep it from being a flash in the pan, like a one-day story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really smart in certain ways, but I also know, having spoken to some of the reporters, that it's frustrating. A lot of them feel like they're being played like puppets. Right that this PR firm working for Francis Hogan has kind of got them over a barrel. And there's been a lot of dissent within journalism about how this is structured. And some have gone so far to to reject this deal and to go about their own reporting on these documents and on Facebook without having to be beholden to this process. Well, it sounds like information that we just want to get out and maybe as savvy as it might sound to kind of play into the way that we know reporters work. Maybe they'll do it for two days and then drop it. At the same time, if it's information that's valuable to the public and meaningful, you just kind of want to get it out there, right? Well, yes, it's incredibly valuable information. I mean, you know, Facebook's unofficial motto used to be move fast and break things. And we now know because of these documents that indeed Facebook has moved fast (laughs) and broken things But some of the things that they have broken include the lives of people in places like the Philippines and Myanmar and Ethiopia. Facebook has also moved fast and broken trust in our democratic institutions. 
and emergency health care systems, they thought that they could hide these facts. And we owe it to this whistleblower to have brought a lot of this to the light. So it is important that we know these things. And I, I think, seriously, it has caused irreversible damage to Facebook, which is now called Meta, by the way. They just announced it. Oh, boy. In particular, I don't know that Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder, and Cheryl Danberg will outlast this. I think there's a lot of serious thinking out there about them having to step down as a result of this. Well, we should note that we are very much in medias res with this. You know, things are, are changing around us in terms of there's an FTC lawsuit, there's the U.S. Attorney General, there's, a, there's legislation going on. And no, I don't think that people are going to be tricked by a rebranding and not be able to follow who this is connected to. Well, you've run through some of the specific impacts that have been revealed in terms of pushing users to extremist groups, in terms of not checking disinformation, in terms of targeting ethnic minorities abroad. It's worth saying that sometimes this is kind of shuttled off as a social media issue as though it were not about real human beings. And one takeaway from these revelations is that communities, communities of color, LGBTQ communities, they're really at risk based on campaigns of hate and harassment and violence that what we're learning is Facebook foments intentionally, as it were. I mean, at least doesn't stop once it's aware they're doing it. Yes. And one of the more important things that we found through this process of expose is that Facebook doesn't devote moderating or AI filtering resources to languages that are spoken outside of the United States. For example, Arabic has 22 distinct dialects and Facebook's AI or artificial intelligence can't really tell the difference. And if you're talking about COVID disinformation in Spanish, the AI is unable to determine whether that's a violation of Facebook's rules or not. So there's been this real failure when it comes to non-English disinformation that's spreading over the network. And it's not only a problem, as many of these reports have revealed, it's not only a problem in countries like India, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in, in Myanmar, Ethiopia, and elsewhere. It's a problem in the United States where we have a number of diaspora communities who don't speak English and often rely on Facebook in their own languages as a source of news and information. And uh, Facebook just hasn't dedicated the resources to vetting those languages. So we find that the spread of disinformation on COVID or on the, the 2020 election results, for example, is far worse in non-English speaking communities that use Facebook. Well, I want to talk about what responses these revelations seem to call for and where they might come from. But I did want to note this New York Times piece with the kind of icky headline, Facebook, show us the mess, the point of which was that perhaps the public and Facebook would benefit if these kinds of rare, unvarnished glimpses, such as the Facebook files offer, into their workings weren't so rare. And the Times column says that that might make the company a little more trustworthy and understood. And that piece reminded me of a piece by Cynthia Koo of the Center on Privacy and Technology about 
the trap, if you will, of transparency as an end in itself, right. when what we need is accountability. Don't show us the mess. Fix it. I wonder if you would talk about what serious responses to the harms that have been revealed about Facebook, what that might look like. Well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and other Facebook executives have come before Congress for well over a year, uh, multiple appearances. I think we've seen in a lot of those hearings that members of Congress were just kind of incapable of talking about how to regulate, how to provide some sort of official oversight to prevent all of the harm that Facebook is causing. And so this process has helped advance that thinking. A lot of the interesting work that's being done in Congress is about looking at the business model, a model that puts engagement and growth before the health and welfare of a multiracial democracy, and to start questioning the way data is used, to start questioning how data is abused and used in discriminatory ways so that ads about job opportunities, for example, can be shared with white people but not with others. Facebook had the capacity to target ads in that way. It still does. And so there is a role not only for Congress to push for, as you say, transparency, but transparency is only a part of the picture. We need also to make sure that if data is being collected, that it's being used in a way that protects the civil rights of individuals and can't be used in discriminatory ways. The FTC also has the authority to conduct a rulemaking about how not just Facebook, but other social media platforms use data. And so we've been very involved in organizing support for action in Congress and at the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, to take on those actions, to provide to launch those sorts of rulemaking proceedings so that we can create a stronger regulatory framework to prevent these types of abuses from happening again. We've been speaking with Tim Carr. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Communications at Free Press. You can follow their work on Facebook and a range of other issues online at freepress.net. Thank you so much, Tim Carr, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to subscribe to FAIR's newsletter, Extra, or to sign up for our Action Alert Network or to show support for us, if you're so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.